Let's pray as we uh, come to the book of Job, uh, to God's word. Uh, Father, we pray that you would now meet us in this story and in the text of your word. Uh, Thank you, Father, as we've just sung, that your mercy seat is open still, that you have grace and mercy to help in our day of struggle and in our day of affliction. Uh, Might we see that and and might we uh, come away encouraged by what you're doing and how you are redeeming suffering uh, in our lives. Uh, Lord, we pray now that you would uh, help us to see the wonderful things that you have for us in this story today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in the book of Job. We are going to try to navigate ourselves through this book in five messages, 42 chapters. We have a lot to do. And if you missed last time, you're already a Sunday behind. But I have good news for you, not not to worry. Um, we're going to kind of review some of that this morning. Uh, the book of Job is it's a chronicle. It's a true historic account of a real man, a real family that lived back in the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and, and those guys. And he was this great, prominent man. He was blessed beyond measure. He had a wonderful family, ten wonderful children. Uh, He had lots of stuff, a great reputation in the community, comfortable retirement, animals, servants, you name it. And the Bible tells us that he was the greatest of the men of the East, not just in terms of his possessions, his reputation, but in his faith. And we know, as we saw last time, that, that unbeknownst to Job, somewhere in the heavenly places... As the angels of God congregate to God himself, that the adversary, the the Satan, comes to present himself before the Lord too. And God calls the adversary's attention to this servant, this great man of faith, Mr. Job. And uh, God says to Satan, have you considered my servant? And uh, Satan says, "Um, of course... Job worships you. Of course he loves you. Of course he follows you. Just look at how nice you've made his life. Just look at the blessings. Just look at the gifts. You've poured out blessing upon blessing. And Satan, the adversary, makes this accusation, this charge against God. And you remember, it's the question that starts off the whole book and indeed sets the course of the whole book. Does Job serve God? God? Does he fear God for nothing? And that directly attacks the character and the nature of God. The implication is, if you take all this stuff away, he'll curse you. Satan says, do it. Take it all away. Take away his blessings. Take away his family. He will surely curse you to your face. And so God gives the adversary permission to do so. And he does. In one afternoon, Job loses his animals, he loses his livelihood, he loses most of his servants, he loses his possessions, his crops, his fields, and all ten of his children. And yet we see, as we saw last week at the end of chapter 1, Job worships God even in the midst of his affliction. The the question that, that hangs in the air as we come away from last week is this, why do we worship? Is God worthy of our worship? And do we follow Him just because of His gifts? Or do we really, truly love and esteem the giver above all else? 
And that's kind of scene one. That's sort of act one on this unfolding drama. And, and just to remember, th- this, is not, this is not fiction. This is a real man. This is a real true story that lived uh, generations ago. But nonetheless, God inscripturated his story to help us to see something of how he works in the midst of suffering. So today we're going to see sort of act two. We're going to unfold that. And uh, I want you to recognize it's it's... As the book unfolds to us, we're going to see today a scene of Job with his wife. Then we're going to see a second scene of Job with his three friends. And then we're going to see a final scene where Job, uh, in the midst of his grief, begins to cry out because of his affliction. Now, before we do that, um, I want to introduce for you what the book of Job is really all about. And, it, and if you were here last time, you already know something about this. The book of Job is really about three different themes that are critical themes that God cares deeply about and that we need to pay attention to. Uh, we saw the first theme last time. It's the theme of worship. And, of course, the question of those uh, the chapter we looked at last time is, why do we worship? Now, what's interesting, this is so cool, and I I put the picture in your notes. I hope it printed out okay. Um, The way these themes come to us in the story of Job is that God is going to wrap each one of these themes around a particular character in the book. And in fact, what we're going to see is the character in the book that corresponds to each of these themes demonstrate a deficient view of the theme. So, uh, let me let me do this for you uh, for number one, since you guys know this from last time. The character of the book that the theme of worship is really wrapped around is the character Satan, the adversary. Satan comes with a wrong, uh, literally diabolical view of worship, right? He has a deficient view of why people worship God. His charge makes that clear, right? People only worship because God makes their life so good. And, of course, the the challenge of of seeing this narrative unfold is to recognize that that's not why the people of God worship him. We worship him because he is deserving of our worship, because he is valuable and he is to be esteemed above all else. So that first theme really wraps around uh, Satan himself and God is going to uh, unfold for us a true picture of worship as the book unfolds. The second theme, as you see there, is the book of suffering. And Job's is the theme of suffering, and Job's three friends are the main characters around which that theme is uh, discovered. And we will see that in a moment. The three friends have a faulty view of how suffering happens and why it happens in the world and how we are to think about God's suffering in contrast to his blessing. The third theme is the theme of justice, as you see there, and that theme revolves around Mr. Job himself. And what we're going to see as the book unfolds in the coming weeks is that Job really has a misunderstanding about justice. And in fact, as the as we get toward the latter parts of the book, we'll see that Job actually is accusing God of being unjust. Now, why should we care about these themes? We should care about these themes, uh, actually, before I say that, we want to remember um, that right smack dab in the middle, and this may, this may not have come out in your notes, living at the intersection of all of those themes is our friend Job. He is living out God's orchestration of how these themes ought to be seen, corrected, and embraced for what they really are. Now, why should we care about these? We should care about these themes because ultimately 
the book of Job is not about Satan. It's not about the three friends. And it's not even ultimately about Job. It's about a greater character, the true, uh, the true character about which this book is really designed to reveal. And who's that? It's God. Now, now watch this. This is absolute genius how God brought this together in his word. Those three themes all touch the character of God in some way. For example, think about worship. What is the question that this theme of worship asks about God? Is he worthy? Right? Is he deserving of our worship? It's a, it's a theme that touches the nature and character of God in terms of his worth and in terms of his value. What about suffering? So the theme of suffering touches the character of God because suffering causes us to think things like this. Is God really good? Is he really gracious and merciful? Because sometimes in suffering, those things can get blurry and even compromised in our mind. So suffering helps us to think about the goodness of God and the grace of God. And finally, the justice of God's, the justice question certainly touches the character of God because the question is, is God really just? Is he really righteous even in the midst of affliction? As the psalm says, is he really righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds? So you see, that's really what the book is about. I'll put this up. Uh, later on probably as we go through this but you need to keep that in your mind because this is the the sort of navigational aid that we're going to need to see what the book of job is all about as it unfolds into the dialogue okay so with that in mind i want you to see this next scene with me this is a scene now of job as we are introduced to mrs job his wife Okay, we, we know if you look back at Job chapter 2, if you haven't grabbed your Bible and turned there, please do that now. Job chapter 2, we see Satan comes a second time. God once again gives him permission to afflict Job. Satan is charging God with the same blasphemous charges that God is not truly worship, worthy of his worship. And uh, if if God were to give Satan permission to take away Job's health, he would surely curse him to his face, the repetition of the charge. So we'll pick it up in chapter 2, verse 7. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And we need to stop right here and and think more particularly about Job's affliction because um, I know when I was a kid and I read this story, I'm thinking this is kind of like chicken pox, right? You know, no big deal. It's going to run its course. It's kind of itchy and uncomfortable, but, but that's, you know, you're going to get through it. But we recognize as we, as we study the whole book of Job, that was not the case. It, just listen as we look through the book of Job. Listen to the descriptions of this disease that he had. We learn here uh, in the next verse that he had to scrape the boils with pieces of broken pottery. Obviously, they were incredibly uncomfortable, itching, Um, difficulty just sitting there and and feeling the discomfort of those. Chapter 7, verse 5 says that as he scraped those wounds or those boils, it broke the skin, the skin began to bleed, and that open, broken skin began to grow infection. In fact, chapter 7, verse 5, sorry to be graphic, but there were worms actually beginning to grow in Job's infections in his wounds it began to scab over the broken skin was festering chapter 7 verse 5 says chapter 30 verse 30 says after this went on for a while his skin became black 
and began to peel. His body was burning, constantly probably experiencing fever as a result of the infections going on. Chapter 2 and chapter 19 talk about his repulsive appearance, how he was hardly recognizable even to his friends. Chapter 19 verses 13 and 14 uh, describe how the community thought he was contagious and so they stayed away and so Job is alone in his grief. Chapter 16 verse 16 says uh, he wept so greatly that his eyes were swollen shut from his grief. Chapter 7 Verses 4 and 13 and 14 says that he couldn't sleep. He was sleepless. If, if you've been in a chronic pain situation, you know exactly what this is like. You can't get comfortable. You can't sleep. You can't rest. And, of course, when you can't rest, then you start not to think straight, right? And you, he starts, Job, uh, the book tells us, starts experiencing delirium. And even the first starts of hallucinating as, as his body is not getting the needed rest. Chapter 7, verse 15 says, In some way the affliction began to cause breathing problems. He was choking. He was struggling to get breath. Chapter 19 uh, said that his infection was so uh, extreme that even his breath was bad and foul. Chapter 19, verse 20 says that as he lost fat, he wasn't eating, he wasn't moving around, he lost muscle tissue, that his body became fully emaciated. He was skin and bones. And chapter 30, verse 17 says that he had uh, ongoing, unrelenting, excruciating pain throughout his whole body. This isn't chicken pox. Uh, This is something incredibly and unrelentingly worse. Look at verse 8. The only recourse in, in a day before modern medicine, before even something as simple as hydrocortisone, all he could do was to scrape himself to bring some semblance of relief self laceration in order to bring about some temporary relief to his itching and to his pain and notice where he is it says here he's among the ashes he's outside the city in the city dump the ash heap of course in this day you see someone who's sick like this you don't want to get the community sick do you and so they would send people outside of the city walls to the local ash heap It was known as the abode of outcasts. That's where this righteous, prominent man now finds himself, to suffer in isolation, away from family, and away from community. And in the next verse, we read, Then his wife said to him. And that shocks us because all along, I don't know what the picture in your mind has been, but she's been there the whole time, hasn't she? through his prominence, through the things of the children, through the afflictions, through the messengers coming, through the digging of ten graves to bury their children. She's been there right by her, his side along the way. And we don't really know much about her other than what this verse tells us and what we can deduce from the context. But, but think with me on this. Um, she, along with Job, has experienced the loss of all their property, all their livelihood, all their crops, all their animals, most of their servants. And she, along with her husband, have wept over the death of their ten children. Uh, I know that some of you have experienced the pain of having to bury one of your own children. Um, It's one of the most painful things that happens in life. And yet, we can hardly imagine that, let alone 
losing all ten of your children in some in the same day. Uh, that happened to dear Mrs. Job. And now her own grief is interrupted by her husband's sudden disease. She can no longer grieve with him. Now she is having to grieve for him. She suddenly finds herself alone in her suffering. She's likely not with him. Remember, Job's outside the city walls of the ash heap. She's probably back at the house. So she's not even around him. She, she can't lean on him anymore. In fact, she has to put her grief aside, as it were, to care for him in the midst of her own grief. It, it's grief upon grief. It's multiplied sadness. And as she's thinking about this and, and her grief is increasing and she's trying to help her husband, she's beginning to put all this together and she realizes, my life is over. I mean, think about it. She has no children. She has no property, no livelihood, no way to sustain herself. Now her husband's dying, and in her mind, he's going to die here in a little bit. Who's going to take care of her? I mean, it's not like you just went down to the the food stamp office and and got on Social Security at this point. There's none of those safety nets in this culture. And the reality is, based on what's going on in her life and the affliction that's happening, you know what the community is saying? Man, God's judgment, God's curse must really be on this family. We're not sure we want to be around those folks anymore. And as she looks at her options, what are Mrs. Job's options? Death? She can sell herself into slavery? She can become a prostitute. That's about it. So as we come to these verses, let's show proper compassion for Mrs. Job. She's suffering alone. Her life is over. Her options are all horrible choices. And her husband is about to die. You know, I think that as we think about Mrs. Job, it's a reminder that we should not forget the genuine suffering of those who walk alongside the sufferer. You ever think about that? Think about the spouses of the person who's suffering. Think about the children who suffer because of trouble with their parents. Think about the caretaker of the sufferer who suffers along with the person who's struggling. Think about the parents of the child with a disability. The parents of the child with a chronic illness. Think about adult children who are caring for their aging and suffering parents. This is the silent sufferer. This is the person who who feels bad to even express their own grief or sorrow or desire for help because they don't want to make it any worse for the person who's suffering, the person they're trying to care for. And so what happens? They suffer alone. They suffer in here, and often people don't realize it. You know, sometimes the sufferer gets all the attention. They get all the ministry. And we forget the loved ones that are walking alongside helping, that they are suffering too. They need our ministry. They need our prayers. They need our encouragement. They need our attention. 
Let's not forget those who are suffering, suffering alongside those who are suffering. So Mrs. Job is watching this day after day. She's struggling. Her grief is piling up. She looks at her husband. She can't intervene. You know what that's like? This person you love is suffering and is in agony and there's nothing you can do. And day after day you see that suffering worsen. Week after week you watch that suffering increase with no relief, no recourse. And she cracks under her grief. Look at verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. You know what's interesting? Mrs. Job saw rightly that God was the source of his suffering, but in the wrong way. Think with me. We interpret... The providence of God. We, we interpret the events of life through the lens of our own understanding of God's character. Yeah, this is going to be heady for a minute. Okay, stay with me. I saw that. Okay, think about this. When events go on in our life, we interpret those events through our own understanding of the character of God. What, you with me? That's how we make sense of all of this. And so Mrs. Job is right to say God's hand is behind this, but she is misguided. Her, her view of Job's suffering is off because she has a skewed view of God. She is seeing God is unjust. God is unfair. Why is she punishing my husband? This is my husband who loves you. This is my husband, the godly man. Why is this happening? Why is there no relief? Why do you keep doing this? Why, why, why? You know, Tozer was right when he wrote that what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because what we think about God is the lens through which we interpret everything. And we can see how dear Mrs. Job's picture of God is skewed. And it comes out in her response, doesn't it? As she processes this, we get to see her heart revealed. In fact, God is using this suffering to show her something about herself. Okay, now you get to get this. As we go through the book of Job, one of the things that God is going to do in the book is he's going to show us what are some of his purposes for suffering. What are his uses for suffering? You know, we all ask the question, if God is good, why doesn't he just eliminate suffering? And, and one of the answers of this book is because God has very good and wise and wonderful things to show us through our affliction. Let me show you one of the uses. We see it right here with Mrs. Job. We'll call it the revelatory use of suffering, okay? The revelatory use. Our reactions to life reveal what we truly believe. God uses our reactions to life in suffering to show us our hearts, to show us what we really believe. And that's what we see here in Mrs. Job. Now, now notice there, there's a Sunday school versus a Tuesday traffic uh, a part of this. So let me explain what I mean by this. 
Um, if we were to go to one of the wonderful Sunday school classes uh, taught by our teachers here, like Don Dietrich or uh, Jack Wortman, one of those wonderful teachers, uh, we might learn something like the sovereignty of God, right? That God is in control, He rules and reigns the universe, and we say, yep, God's sovereignty is good, I'm in, He's there, He's in control, I get it. And we could all pass a Sunday school test to that effect. Now think about that version of our theology as opposed to the version of our theology that happens when we're three miles back from the Crescent train tracks when we're already late to work. How many got caught in the construction last week, by the way? I heard a few of you got, got stuck there. Okay. Now you see the difference, right? What we say in Sunday school is our sort of intellectual theology. And that's important, but that's not nearly as important as what we might call our practical theology, our functional theology, stay with me, our actual theology, what we really believe. And I'll tell you what, just like you, I'm sitting in my car three three quarters of a mile back and I'm struggling with the sovereignty of God at that moment. I'm questioning the sovereignty of God and I might be questioning other things about his goodness and his kindness and his care for me. And it's important to see that whether or not we pass a Sunday school test is not so much the issue. Our real theology, our actual theology, what we really believe about God and life comes out in suffering. And that's what we see here. As Mrs. Job views the events of life, she's struggling. You know what she's struggling with? And, and, and this is something we all struggle with. The Bible says this, but my life says this other thing. Right? The Bible says God is sovereign, but he doesn't seem to, to be in control of this area of my life that seems recklessly out of control. God says he loves me, but this event in my life makes me feel like God doesn't care. God says he'll provide for me, but this event in my life makes me think God, God has it to, to, to do me in. What do we do in those moments where the theology we know in Scripture and what we're seeing in life collide? Can I suggest that those are really important moments of grace where God is showing us something about ourselves? And that's what Mrs. Job is struggling with here. As she struggles with this, what comes out of her heart is God must be doing wrong. He's unjust. He's unfair. And notice, look, look back at her answer. Do you still hold fast your integrity? She says, Job, if this is what following God is like, it's not worth it. Just, just turn in. Just, just resign right now. Just curse him and let's end this pain. And you understand that in this culture, to, to, to curse God is to invite and bring about your own death. It's her only answer. End it. I can't watch this anymore. I cannot see you suffer anymore. And this dear woman unknowingly becomes Satan's accomplice. She joins the voice of the accuser in saying it's only worth it if it's good. Now, watch this. Job is bleeding to death. He's dying. He's in the ash heap. Mrs. Job thinks it's going to be over soon. And this amazing 
godly man, as his dear wife has just told him to curse God and die, responds. Look at this. He said to her, verse 10, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Husbands, is that how we would respond? On our worst day, if this is what our wife says to us? I think, I think we can learn something of Job's example when sufferers need loving correction. Can I just say to you, sufferers sometimes need loving correction. I, I think that sometimes we think that suffering is a license to say whatever we want or do whatever we want without consequences. And I think sometimes that we think and sufferers think that because they have been through so much suffering that any sort of rebuke or criticism or correction is automatically out of bounds. But the reality is we all probably need loving correction more when we're struggling than when we're not under affliction. You say, why is that? Because in suffering, you know, you know what's true in suffering? We are more vulnerable. We are more prone to temptation. We are more likely to be blind to what's really going on. We are more susceptible to believe things and do things that we ordinarily would not do. So we need loving correction. And Job recognizes that his dear, sweet, suffering wife is out of line. She, she just told him to curse God. She needs his loving and sanctifying correction. Notice how he does this. This is, this is really, really amazing. And I think we can learn something about how to do this and how to do it well. Uh, he gently rebukes her, doesn't he? He doesn't say, dear, I'm sure that's what he said, um, you're acting like a fool. He says, you know what? You're, you're speaking like one of those foolish ladies over there. He's saying, sweetheart, this isn't like you to act like this. It's gentle. It's, it's tender. He's, he's rebuking, but he's doing it in such a nice way. No, notice that Job doesn't get angry. He doesn't yell. He doesn't take it personally. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't we take it personally? We're lying in the hospital with stuff going all over the place and the dee, 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 you know, and, and, and this is the sort of conversation we get. And he responds with a gentle answer, doesn't he? I think the most interesting part of this is he challenges her heart by challenging her theology. Did you see that? He challenges what's wrong with her heart by challenging her theology. He says, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Is this, our, is this the same wise, good, gracious Father God who has blessed our life, who is now also bringing hardship? I love that. He uses questions rather than accusations. And his answer defends God's justice. She, she, as it were, is standing in judgment of the Creator, isn't she? She's standing in judgment of God. What does that make you sound like? What, 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 make you sound like? That doesn't make sense. What does that sound like? It's the same sin of Eve, isn't it? Interesting, the parallels. Eve, with Satan's help, stood in judgment of God. 
And now we see the same thing playing out, Mrs. Job standing in judgment of God. So he gently corrects her. He kindly rebukes her. And the text tells us in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Okay? Now we have a scene change. And somebody else arrives in the ash heap. Chapter 2, verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard all this adversity had come upon him, they came each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namathite, and they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. And I confess when I read that for the first time, it's like, what do they do? Call him up and say, can you fit us in on your day planner? No, no, what they're saying is, the appointment was they all got together and worked together and said, we need to go collectively and help our friend. They came, it says there, to sympathize with him in comfort. In verse 12, when they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe and they threw dust on their heads toward the sky. That was the way to express grief in that day. And then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. And in light of the magnitude of his affliction, no one said a word. You ever been in a hospital situation like that? You ever gone to visit a friend after a car accident and you walk in and you're like, that's my friend? I don't even recognize them. And, and the grief in the room is so thick, nobody dares to say a word. That's, that's what the scene was like. Um... And I would suggest to you that this is one of the high points of the book. All goes wrong when they open their mouths. And you know what? We can learn from that, can't we? we in our church, we call this the ministry of presence. And uh, c- can I tell you that, that just this very morning, somebody was talking about how great our church is, how great all of you are, how kind and thoughtful you are, just to regularly, continually be with one another in hard things and in days of affliction. And I think by God's grace, this is an area where we are doing well. True friends are those willing to climb into the ash heap of your suffering and stay there. You know, there really are only two modes of faithful ministry. Walking with God in the midst of your own suffering or walking along a loved one in the midst of theirs. And the reality is there is enough suffering in life that if we find ourselves regularly comfortable, it probably means we are being unfaithful in some way. So we don't want to undervalue the ministry of presence. Okay? Chapter 3, verse 1. Are you there? afterward we don't know how long after we don't know if it's been weeks or months we know obviously job's friends were there um, for a week but we also know that at least eliphaz came from a town that was at least a hundred miles away and if they had to work together with the other two i mean it could be weeks it could be months that have gone on job living with this affliction chapter 3 verse 1 he can't take it anymore he opens his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. Let's look now at the third scene, which is Job's darkness. Job's darkness. Verse 3. 
Let the day perish on which I was to be born. And the night which said a boy is conceived, may that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor light shine on it. Let darkness and black gloom claim it. Let a cloud settle on it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, let darkness seize it. Let not... Let it not rejoice amongst the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful shout enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are prepared to rouse Leviathan. Let the stars of its twilight be darkened. Let it wait for the light, but have none. Let it not see the breaking of dawn, because it did not shut the opening of my mother's womb or hide trouble from my eyes. Job calls on the whole creation to curse and blacken the day of his birth. Verse 11. Why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. Look down at verse 20. Why is light given to him who suffers and life to the bitter soul who long for death, but there is none who dig for it more than hidden treasures. Job is saying I'm, uh, he's longing to die. Who rejoice greatly and exult. They, they, they exult when they finally find the grave. Verse 22. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? For my groaning comes at the sight of my food. He's not eating. My cries pour out like water. He's sobbing uncontrollably. For what I fear comes upon me and what I dread befalls me that it, he means, it will never end. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I am not at rest, but turmoil comes. And Job begins to spiral down into what we can only describe as spiritual depression. Have you ever been here? Have you ever struggled with depression or know someone who has? We we learn exactly what depression is here. Look back at the narrative. What's it like? Darkness, gloom, clouds, blackness, no rejoicing, hopelessness, ongoing pain, affliction, longing for death that doesn't come, wishing that he had never been born, wishing that he was never alive forgetting what it means to rejoice, calling on everything else to to condemn that very day that he died, that he was born. Being walled in, not being able to, to get out, not being able to change, no hope for a change in situation. And this is, this is Job. Think of this. He had this wonderful reputation, all this stuff, all this possession. He enjoyed a wonderful reputation in the community, wonderful family. And now he's saying, I would rather have none of that and just never have been born if this is what my life was like. Is it possible for a believer, even a mature believer, even a strong godly person to experience a season of darkness and depression like this? Absolutely. Read the Psalms. Read the prophets. Read about the faithful apostles. Read about the the great men and women of church history. It's absolutely possible. Is it possible for a true believer 
to hurt so badly that they feel like ending their life? Is it possible for a godly person to get to such a dark place that they are thinking suicidal thoughts? The answer is yes. That's what it says. And we see Mr. Job descend into a great place of darkness. Will you notice with me on your notes there that the harder battles in suffering are those internal struggles provoked by external afflictions. You've got to see this now. There's all this stuff that's happened on the outside, right? He's lost his kids. He's lost his farmland. He's lost his animals. He's lost his um, livelihood and his possessions. He's lost his health. And all those things are horrible. But that's not, listen, listen, that is not the worst of his pain. The worst of his pain is in here. And the battle is in here. And I I, I just think we we need to, to make a point to think about that. Because when we're coming alongside someone who's struggling, sometimes we forget what suffering is like. And we think about, well, there's this medical cure here. There's this other job you might get here. There's this other thing over here that might make your life better. And we forget that the real ministry is needed right here in how they are processing and dealing with and struggling with the realities of suffering. And, and, and Mr. Job longs for death as his only relief. Many of you may know uh, the name Brian Birdwell, Senator Brian Birdwell. He is one of our state senators right here, District 22. Uh, you may not know him as well as Lieutenant Colonel Brian Birdwell of the United States Army. And before his political uh, career, he was an Army officer. And in 2001, he was stationed at the Pentagon. And on September 11th, terrorists flew a fully fueled 757 just a few doors down from Mr. Birdwell's office. His two co-workers were killed instantly. And... Mr. Birdwell, Senator Birdwell, happened to be down the hall at the men's room when the airplane hit, which is why, in God's kind providence, he survived. But he was burned over 60% of his body, uh, many of which were third-degree wounds. He had 39 different surgeries, multiple skin grafts. Um. He and his wife wrote a wonderful biography called Refined by Fire. Um, I would highly recommend this to you if you've not read it. Um, I, don't, I don't cry a whole lot when I read books. I, I, can't, I can't get through this without weeping. Listen to Mr., uh, Senator Birdwell's testimony. The pain of the explosion when the airplane hit the Pentagon was minor compared to the pain I now experienced. The scrubbings, the infection, the grafts, the swelling. Nothing took away the hurt completely. And if you know anything about how they treat burn victims where they have to go to these tanks and have their skin scrubbed, it's, it's unspeakably painful. While some medications dulled the pain, my skin burned body refused to stop screaming out in anguish. So I began to pray for the times when I would go to surgery. At least then I would be knocked out and would experience some relief. But mostly I lay in my hospital room, unable to move, unable to take away the pain. I spent a lot of time waiting, 
waiting for the pain to go away, waiting for my body to heal, waiting and thinking. I was walking a fine line between life and eternity. I was in such excruciating pain. Listen to this. I begged God constantly to let me die. And yet there was no reprieve. And as you know, uh, Senator Birdwell and his dear wife are wonderful believers. And uh, they talk in that about how their faith was what sustained them through that horrible event. But that's where Mr. Job is. He, he's longing for death. He's longing that God would take his life because his pain is so significant. And here, here's the good news. If you've ever felt like that, if you've ever experienced pain and suffering to the degree that you don't want to live anymore, that you're questioning it, then you're wondering it, wondering about it, uh, there's good news. Because God, as we're going to see in this book, is going to meet people just like you, just like me, just like Mr. Job, and show us the hope and help as we hear the message of this book. Did you notice, though, what this section, what happens in this section as Job spirals down to depression? What does he start to do? He starts to ask lots of questions, doesn't he? Now, we talk about the uses of suffering, right? We talk about the revelatory use that God uses suffering to reveal my heart. Let me show you a second use. We'll call this the inquisitional use. The inquisitional use. Suffering causes us to ask questions we ordinarily would not ask. And I would suggest to you that the questions that we ask in the midst of suffering are part of God's redemption of suffering. You got it? The questions we ask in suffering are part of God's redemption, part of the way he's going to do good in the midst of our suffering. Just look back at the text. Notice, notice the questions that Job asks here. They're exceedingly important. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. Why did I not die at birth? Do you know how many thousands of people Hundreds of thousands of people, perhaps maybe millions of people have asked that very question. If my life was going to be this hard and this painful, why did God even let me come into the world? That's a good question, isn't it? It's a really good question. Look at chapter 3, verse 20. Why is light given to him who suffers? If my life was going to be this bad, why did God give me any good stuff? To enjoy. Why, why, if it was going to be this bad, why the contrast that makes the pain even severe, even more severe? Look at chapter, verses 21 and 22. Why does God keep alive those who wish to die? That's a good question. That's a question we're trying to figure out in our nation right now as we think about end-of-life issues, isn't it? Flip the page. Look at chapter 4, verse 17. Look at this. Can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? That's a great question. Is it possible for a sinner to stand in the presence of God, who's holy and pure? Look at uh, chapter 7, verse 17. What is man? What is man that you magnify him and that you are concerned about him? Why does God care about us? 
What, what is this relationship with God that we're trying to figure out? Look at verse 21, same chapter. Why does God, he says, why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? God, Job says, God, if you're punishing me for my affliction, why don't you just forgive me? Why are you refusing to forgive me? Why, why does forgiveness not remove the punishment and the pain? Or maybe God isn't willing to forgive. So you, you get the idea. This story asks really good questions. 261 questions by my math. Because that's what suffering does, doesn't it? We learned last week that suffering asks you questions. It asks me questions. Very important ones. And the, if we flip it around, we ask questions of suffering too, don't we? We ask questions back. And in the midst of pain and hardship... That's what we do. And and I want you to see, guys, this is one of the ways God redeems our suffering. He causes us to ask questions that we ordinarily would not ask. Because here's what we do. When life is good, when life is comfortable, here's the sort of questions we ask. Where are we going to lunch today? Are we going to watch the playoff game this afternoon? That's the level of spirituality that we reach when life is typically comfortable. And yet God brings affliction and affliction brings pain. And pain causes us to ask some of the most important questions we will ever ask ourselves. And listen, listen. If we chase those questions back, they bring us ultimately to God and to His plan. And that's why we need them. We need His grace at the end of difficult questions. Now, with that in mind, let's ask another question. What happens to sufferers and those who minister to them? Well, we are about to start the part of the book that you're tempted to skip. And I'm here to tell you, don't skip it, because that's where the good stuff is. Okay? Can I I get your affirmation of that? Don't skip it. Chapters 4 all the way through chapter 31 is what we call the debate section or the dialogue section. Let me explain it to you. My name's Keith. I'm going to be your tour guide to help you to navigate through this, okay? Eliphaz is going to speak to Job in chapters 4 and 5. Then Job is going to respond. Then Bildad is going to speak in chapter 8, and then Job's going to respond. And then Zophar is going to speak in chapter 11. Job's going to respond, and then that cycle is going to repeat three times. Eliphaz and Job, Bildad then Job, Zophar then Job, back to Eliphaz, and it goes... Uh, around the the relational mulberry bush or whatever we want to call it, okay? Um, And there's one exception. When when Zophar gets to his third time, he's going to throw the towel and say, "Ah, I'm I'm done with this guy. He's he's not listening anymore. So he he punts on his third turn. And so Job's final response is really, 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 really long because he thinks he gets to to take the time that Zophar didn't want to use. It's true. It's, it's, It's what happens, okay? And you know what? That's what we do, right? You're not going to talk? Well, I'll keep talking. Now, let me show you what happens. You know, just, just one example, okay? Can I, can I show you one example? Uh, look at chapter 4. Chapter 4, where Eliphaz opens his mouth, okay? Now watch this. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, answered, If one ventures a word with you, will you become impatient? Oh, my, right out of the gate, he trips over the starting blocks, doesn't he? 
But who can refrain from speaking? Behold, you have admonished many, and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have helped the tottering to stand, and you have strengthened feeble hands. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. Job, you've counseled lots of people. You've helped lots of people in suffering, and now it comes to you, and you're complaining about it? Woo! Verse 6, Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Verse 7, you need to pay attention to this one, okay? You like to underline verses? Here's one. Remember now whoever perished being innocent or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. What did he just say? Job, I know why you're being afflicted. Why is he being afflicted? He's sinning in some way. Here's Mr. Eliphaz's, Eliphaz's, how do you pluralize it, make possessive a, a, a guy with N's and Z? It's just too many syllables. Um, here's the problem with his theology. Here's how his theology goes. You do what's right, God blesses you. You do what is wrong, God punishes you. Uh, theologians call that retributive theology. I call it vending machine theology, right? You put your dollar in, you get out your Coke, right? You put the right thing in, you get the right thing out. You put the wrong thing in, it spits right back out. That's life. And most, actually, most of the religions of the world operate in some sort of framework like that, don't they? You just do what's right and the gods are happy and bless you or your ancestors are happy and bless you or however it goes. Here's what I want you to see. Why would he say that? He says that because we counsel out of our theology. We give advice based on that practical, actual theology that we really believe. And the way Eliphaz's theology goes, you do what's right, God blesses, you do wrong, God punishes. So so his theology leads him to this conclusion. Job, all this bad stuff isn't happening for nothing. Now, now you and I as the readers, what are we doing at this point? No, he's wrong, he's wrong. Why? Because we know why it's really happening. Why is his affliction really happening? Because God drew Satan's attention to Job Satan made an accusation against God, and God said, game on. Let's see who is right and who is wrong. But I want you to see this, because this is very important. Um, We need to be very, very, very careful about the counsel we give other people. I know what you're thinking. Oh, that's fine, Pastor Keith. I'm not an ACBC counselor. I'm great for all those ACBC counselors we got in our church. I'm not a counselor. Well, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. Yes, you are. That's absolutely right, ma'am. Do you have a mouth? Do you use your mouth? Then you're a counselor. Okay? Now, Now listen. Listen very closely. Your counsel is only as good as your theology. Bad theologians make horrible counselors. And the reality is we are all counselors and we can inflict great blessing and encouragement or great turmoil and grief based on how we counsel. So we need to be very careful to let our true theology drive what we're saying. You know, when you're suffering... 
Sometimes the most dangerous person in your life is the well-meaning friend with bad theology. Okay? Our counsel is only as good as our theology. Now, put a comma in your notes. We'll come back next week and we'll continue. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the message of this book. I pray as we continue to unfold it that you would help us to heed its message, to grow, to believe the right things about you, about ourselves, about life, that we might really truly be helpful in our counsel to other people. Father, I pray, might we see even in our own affliction, even for our dear brothers and sisters today that are experiencing suffering, might they see what you're doing to redeem it and bring good out of it for your glory and for the good of your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.